Welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated to Lila Nishmat Rifka Bagapo Halevi, Lucy Maya, and Rina D. Rufu Shlema, Vertila Batya, Vachaya Tova, Bracha Vikavra, Vachalkito, Yitigi Haim, and Aviv Rifka Chaya, Shalom, Vachaya Sarashim, and Elka, Shagokham for all those in need. Uh, a special thank you to the Barrett's family for hosting our share this week. We are now up to Parakimel, and I, I think this is really when the excitement starts in Sefer Shoftim, because what ends up happening is we're going to meet this week the first of the Shoftim. In fact, we're not only meet the first, but the second and the third. The, the Parak starts with, These are the, the nations that God left, and they're there, what, to test, to, to be a, uh, a, a point of contention to the Jewish people, a thorn in their sides to teach them about warfare. These are the nations that the Jews did not conquer. It's a very hard passage to understand. What exactly is going on? It's going to teach generations of B'nai Yisrael war uh, that, that those before didn't know. So the Rabag and the Radak basically say these are the leftovers um, and they would have to fight when Hashem's Hashkacha decides to abandon so to speak, the Jewish people. And Hashem says, I'm not, I'm not taking care of you. You didn't do what I wanted. You didn't do what I asked you to do. Okay, so now what's going to happen? I'm going to let you make it up. Try to figure it out. See what happens. You guys are so amazing. You think you could handle this on your own? You don't need to conquer the non-Jewish nations. You're just going to accept that they're there. Seder, I'm totally fine with that. Enjoy. Let's see how that works. So, the Pasuk the then continues, Gemol, Chamesh Tzarnei Plishtim, the five Tzarnei Plishtim, the Cholak Nani Batzidomi Vachivi Yoshev Har Levano Mehar Baal Chermon Adlochama. So we have the cities along the coast, the five cities of the Plishtim, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gat, which kind of form a little bit of a band at the bottom part of the coast. And then we work our way up the entire coastal area see all the way up north to Tzido. That's what we have. And then it circles towards Hermon Adavochamat. So you have this band that goes up the entire coast and then shoots across northern Israel. The Jewish people had a better handle, a better hold on the eastern part of Israel, what we would now call the West Bank. And then below that, Yushalayim down to Beersheba. But it was the coastal area, which was really the bread and butter, the most fertile and the most um, the most successful part of Israel. And, and the part that included also the highway that would get you along the coast to then go into Aram. That was all held in the hands of the, uh, the non-Jewish people. Now, there is a problem with this Pasuk, Pasuk Gimel. It tells us the five cities of the Plishtim. It's a problem, though, because we learned Sefer Yoshua. And some of us that learned Sefer Yoshua might have a better memory than I do. And might remember, wait a second. These were cities that were conquered. So if they were cities that were conquered in the times of Yoshua, why is it that all of a sudden now they're not conquered? Says the Radak. The Radak is bothered by this question. He says, He says, Now, it is interesting, if you take a look at the map carefully, just thinking about this now, 
You have Gazold in the south, Ashkelon and Ashdod, as they are right there. And then Ekron kind of moves north and it moves east. And then Gat, which is actually not far from Big Shemesh, you can go there to, to this very day. All of those, they form a kind of like a, a little bit of a, of a J or a, or a U. The Red Axis, these were only, these were the five big cities. But within the inside area, there were small towns, small villages that were that were there. He says, the Jewish, Yehuda conquered these already. Because the great answer. He says, perhaps it's possible that later on, the Plishtim took these cities back. Now, Rabbi Michael Hatton, my, not my finest um, scanning job, talks about them and says they were, the Plishtim were invaders from afar, probably from the island of Crete. He dwelt in cities along the coast and were organized into a federation of five powerful city-states. At the time of the judges, Sefer Shoktim, their presence was just beginning to be felt in the land. Just to take a pause for a second, parenthetically, we know that they existed and they were something already in the times of Yitzhak Mitzayim. Why? Because we're told at the beginning of Parshas B'Shalach, the Plishtim were already formidable as an opponent then. And at the time of the judges, their presence was just beginning to be felt in the land. But due to their superior technology and more extensive military experience, the pressure that they exerted upon the towns and cities of the interior steadily increased until by the dawn of the Israelite monarchy, it was intolerable. If you know anything about Shmuel, you'll know that in the times of um, Shaul the king, the Plishtim, their reign was much stronger and much further. The, the Plishtim attacked by Shiloh. Shiloh is across. It's east of Jerusalem, I believe. North, far north of where Ashdod and Ashkelon are. They, they really took over that place. And the Plishtim remained a potent and much feared force until they were finally overpowered by David centuries after the events of our book. And so that is our possible. And they were there to test the Jewish people. Would the Jewish people follow the ways of Moshe? And the Jewish people, they lived among what happens? They took the daughters as wives and their sons as married in with them. And they um and they mar- and they, they worship their idols. Now I, I, I happen to like the picture. Um it's cute. What is a recipe for disaster? It's mis- mixing business and pleasure. The Jewish people originally did not view this as saying, Oh, you know what? I'm gonna end up marrying these non-Jewish women, but they said, listen. We, we don't want to get rid of them. War is hard. Peace is better. They're here. They'll pay us taxes. We're going to enter into a business relationship with them. And it's nice. It starts off that way. Everybody gets along. It's a fabulous, fabulous setup. Until all of a sudden, you know, listen, my Kanani neighbor, we do enough business together. He says to me, listen, why don't you come over to my house? Okay. I've got a son. Got a daughter. Shit. 
recipe for disaster. It starts with business, ends in pleasure. And so the interfaith wedding ceremony uh, picture on the right is what happens when we start with business back then. Now, I'm not suggesting that nowadays if someone is in business um, and has colleagues that are non-Jewish, that's going to lead to intermarriage. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're living among them, the way the Canaanim were living, interwoven with the Jewish people, business becomes business, eventually mixes with pleasure. Before you know it, moves on to much more dangerous things than that. And then, of course, the question is, which one will win? If I am a Jewish person and I'm thinking to myself, what do I want? What will make me happy? I could be in this religion that requires and demands lots of things out of me. There's 613 mitzvahs. Or I could live a hedonistic lifestyle where I do what I want. I eat what I want. Everything I do is whatever will make me happy. Which one will win? Now, just to go off on soapbox for just a moment, I think that part of the problem is we often view mitzvot from the wrong perspective. When we start looking at mitzvot and saying these are 613 do's and don'ts, it's very, very dangerous because who would want to do that when I could enjoy life and eat anywhere and, and be with anybody, all of those things. It's a hard sell. But the Nesir Shalom has a beautiful idea of the Slanam Rebbe, where he says, what are, what, what are 613 mitzvot? Each one is a different opportunity. It's a different avenue for me to connect with Hashem. When I view it that way, it's a game changer. All of a sudden, I don't look and say, oh, can't do this. But I can, I can live a meaningful life. I could do all these things. How? My mitzvot. It, it's a huge mind shift. But it's an important one to tip the scales. Then, which one will win? Meaningful life or seize the moment? Right now, it's going to be great. But what's the payoff? And what's the, what's the price tag? That, I believe, is what the Jewish people missed. But in a, in a land where you had two things, this hedonistic, idol-worshipping society or doing the word of God, it, it was not an easy sell. And so what happens? So they worshipped idols. The Alim, Baal, the storm god. In Israel, that's the, that's the most important thing, rain. Even, even in, in Devarim, when we talk about our relationship with God, God does sell it that way. Believe in me, you won't have that. You won't have the absence of rain. Believe in me, and I, I will turn the reins on to take care of you. That's that's what God offers. But why do I need to do that when I could worship Baal? That's what my neighbors are doing. First, I marry their daughters, and they say, "Hmm, this really, this this holiday or my holidays." You, know, you have to think about it. Kids sometimes struggle. Hanukkah, Christmas. When you live in America, they're so they're they're in your ears. Christmas all the time. And then you say to yourself, "But." I don't know, Hanukkah is like these little lights and Christmas is this huge thing. It's a hard sell unless you change the way you look at it and say, well, amazing opportunity. It's how I'm going to connect to God. But the Jewish people did not pull that off. And so what ends up happening? Pasuk, 
ויעבדו בני ישראל כושר ראשותיים שמונה שנים. So the, the God gets angry the Jewish people, or the Jews anger God, and he sells them off into the hands of Kushan Rishatayim, Melech Aram Naharayim, the king named Kushan Rishatayim, who is the king of Aram Naharayim. Now we know Aram Naharayim. What do we know about Aram Naharayim? We know that Aram Naharayim is the place that Lavan is from. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But um, it's Aram Naharayim. Why is that Aram Naharayim? There is a Nahar and another Nahar. And Aram is the one in between it. There's another Aram. There's Aram Tsova. But the Aram that we're talking about is the one between the two rivers. That's what we know, Aram Naharayim. Okay. So Kushan Rishatayim, Melech Aram Naharayim. You have this king of Aram Naharayim. That sounds like, sounds like a nice rhyme. Chag, rag, tag, bug, hog. Rishatayim Naharayim. Kushan Rishatayim Melech Aram Naharayim. Well, what's with this? Uh, what's with this rhyming going on here? Perhaps there's a little bit more. What if we dig just a wee bit deeper? Kushan Rishatayim. Rabbi Alex Israel says maybe the same way Aram Naraim is a double language, two rivers. Kushan Rishatayim. He is this guy Kushan who is Rasha. Why? What does it mean? He's a Rasha. He has this double dose. He's not just a regular Rasha, but he's got an extra level, an extra amount of of, uh, of wickedness, and he is king. And rules over the Jewish people for eight years. Now, a beautiful, beautiful thing that the Das Mikra has. Das Mikra says that um, Kushan Rishatayim is actually, um, cannot find where I wrote that. Oh, Das Mikra says Kushan Rishatayim is in the Mesopotamian records. We have someone in the Kesa Rishti. Sounds a little bit like Kushan Rishatayim. Anytime you have that, Feel a little bit better. It means that history actually backs up what Tanakh says. But um, the, the Medrash says, Rishatayim al shem shtei rishayot shiu aram kushan. It was the two evil things that were done. Number one was the wickedness of Bilam. And the second one was the wickedness of Kushan. What's going on? So let's hold that on the back burner for a second. But if you look at the map on our screen, you'll see that what? Aram is all the way up, perhaps even a little further up. Now, what we're going to see in Pasuk Tet is that Kubnei Sel Hashem, the Jewish people cry. They don't do tshuva. There's no tshuva. Shoftim rarely has tshuva, but they cry. Who saves them? The first shofate. Who is he? Atniel ben Knaz. Who is Atniel ben Knaz? Achi Kalev Akaton. He is the younger brother of Kalev. It's a little weird because Kalev is not ben Knaz. Kalev is Kalev ben Yefune. They are perhaps stepbrothers or half brothers, but they definitely don't have the same father. Atniel comes to save them. Atniel, though, is from, if he's. Kalev's brother, he's from what Shevet? He's from the Shevet of Yehuda. So the question is, how did Aram Naharayim attack the Jewish people? If we accept the thesis that Shoftim, if the Shofet himself is from Yehuda, then that's where the attack is. And it, the rest of the Jewish people, they're immune to it. Now, if that's the case, then how did, how did Aram Naharayim from all the way up here attack the Jewish people. Did they attack 
coming through and going through all of northern Israel until they end up in this area where it's the kingdom of Judah. Or perhaps they came through the other side and then went right there and came up through Edom. Which one is it? I don't know. I'm not sure. Definitely sounds like there's two possibilities. But Atniel ben Knaz comes as the Shofar and he saves them. Now, why Atniel ben Knaz? What is significant about Atniel ben Knaz? That's one. Why is it Aram Narayim? Why, why are they the king? Those are some of our questions that I want to try to figure out. But I want to throw in one other passage, one other piece. There's a Gemara in Sanhedrin that says, Lavan and Be'or, Be'or, Bilam ben Be'or, are parasha today. Bilam ben Be'or and Kushan Rishatayim, they're all the same person. Lavan, Be'or, Kushan Rishatayim, they're all the same person. Now, there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, Lavan lived a good number of years before the Jewish people even went down to the Mitzrayim. 17, 20 years, something like that, before they even went down to the So when, how long did Lavan live? When did Lavan die? I don't know. Bilam and Baor. Baor is already 40 years after Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So you're talking now 250 years after the Jewish people enter the land of Israel. And now Kushan Rishatayim is a good number of years after that. They're all the same person. What's the deal with that? That's a question we have to try to understand. So a lot of questions. Love and Gore, Kushan, who are they? Why, how, why is it that Kushan Rishatayim from all the way north of all the people that attack, why does he attack all the way down south? Southern Israel. Why is it Neil ben Knaz, the leader? What are we supposed to make of all this? So Rabbi Ariel has a beautiful idea. He says, perhaps what's going on here is the Torah has a message. This is the beginning and echoes of Beratius. Beratius echoes, says, who's the leader? Yehuda. So who, what's going to happen? Lavan is going to come. Lavan, Aram, right? that old Chevra, maybe not Lavan himself, unlikely Lavan, but someone like Lavan. From around the is going to come. And who does he, who's he going to attack? He's not interested in anybody other than the heart, the soul, the seat of leadership of the Jewish people, Yehuda. That's why he goes down there. It's a possibility. It's one possibility. I want to suggest another possibility. I'm not really sure where this answer came from, but I believe that this answer could make a lot of sense. Let's think of for a moment about Lavan. Why did Lavan hate, why did Lavan hate Yaakov? Yaakov is his nephew. Yaakov is his son-in-law. Yaakov is the one that fathers his grandchildren. You would think that at the very least, even if you're not close with your in-laws, there'd be a cold piece. Lavan wanted to uproot it all. Lavan wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Why? What does he have to gain? 
This is his family. Bilam and Baor wants to curse the Jewish people. But why? What does he have to do with the Jewish people? He's not. There's nothing. No connection whatsoever. No reason to want to attack the Jewish people. Leave them alone. Hushan Rishatayim? What does he have to gain? So all the way up north. The Jewish people are so far. He has so many other people to deal with. Why, why worry about the Jews? Perhaps what the Torah is actually teaching us is that sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Lavan shouldn't hate us, but he does. Philip has no reason to hate us, but he does. Kushan Shatayim has no reason to hate us, but he does. Why? Because God says, you're not doing my what I want from you. No problem. I want you to be attacked by someone who... It's, it's illogical. There's no reason. It doesn't make any sense. That is exactly what I want you to know. And that's what I want you to do. That's, an, that's another answer. But perhaps there's one other answer. It's a, it's a Pesach-related thought. In the beginning, our forefathers were Ode Avodazara. Where? Where? Who? Lavan and his and all of his ancestors. Abram breaks off from that. He comes to Israel and says, I believe in God. And now that I believe in God, because that's a lot. But on top of that, what am I going to do? I am going to show everyone the beauty of God. Amazing. That's what he says. So he does. When the Jewish people revert back to the ways of Haran, when they start behaving no longer the way Avram did, when he came to Eretz Canaan, but the opposite, God says, no problem. You're not interested? No worries. I'm going to send you the punishment from your ancestors, from your roots. You don't want to believe? Fine, let those people punish you. It's a subtle reminder about why there's who they're supposed to believe in, what they're supposed to believe in, and where they fall short. Why Etniel? Why is he chosen as the leader? And why is it so vague? We're going to learn about Ehud next. And Ehud, there's a, there's a story there. What's the story here? The Jews sinned. We're introduced an enemy. They, they beg forgiveness. Or not beg forgiveness. They cry. God saves them. How? How did Neil save them? No idea. What did he do to save them? Not sure. Why Neil? So Michael Hatton has a beautiful idea. He says, you know what happens? The Jewish people messed up. They gave up. They stopped fighting. They stopped believing. So what does God do? God sends him a leader who is from the era of Yoshua. He says, listen, look at this guy. He's conqueror. He's believer. He's strong. He's wise. He's a Gadol Torah. That's what you should be doing. Stop. God sends them back to the era of Yoshua. Because he needs to dial them back to where they should have been. 
what they could have been and what they should aspire to be doing. Why are we given such a vague story? This is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable answer. Rabbi Hatton suggests that even though it probably was a local Yehuda family, and probably up north, Aram, if they came into the land of Israel, they peacefully went through and attacked Yehuda. They weren't interested. But God wants the Jewish people to remember So God creates a very different story. It's a story of quiet. It's a story of peace. It's a story of everybody getting of, of everybody being part of it. Why? Everybody suffered, it sounds like, and everybody is uh, finds peace. But it's not really true. Only a small people, a segment, suffered. But God wants to remind us that we're all in it together. So what happens? He gets the Ruach Hashem. Rabbi Alex Israel says, what's the Ruach Hashem? He quotes the Rambam in Moru Nevuchim, who says there are multiple levels of Nevuah. The most basic level is Ruach Hashem. What is Ruach Hashem? Ruach Hashem is inspired. I just have a feeling. Perfect example of inspiration and how the Ruach Hashem could work. Not sure what to do, but I, I get this feeling inside me that this is what I should be doing. And so I do it. And it turns out to be the right decision. There's a little bit of Ruach Hashem. Hashem is guiding me. Hashem is coaching me. Hashem is pushing me. I'm inspired to do something. And that gets me to the right place. That's the level that he had. And he, what does that Neil do? He judges the Jewish people and he, he beats Kushan Rishatayim and he overcomes him and he leaves. He, the, the land is quiet for 40 years and he, uh, and Atniel dies. Interestingly, Rabbi Alex Israel discusses these numbers, 40 and, and the next will have 80 and then another 40. Are they real numbers or are they rounded numbers? He said it's a machloket among uh, in the Gush between Rav Meidan on the one hand and Rav Nadiv on the other. Not, one says it's it's really 40 because when David Melch was king for 40 years, we don't question and say, was he king for 40 years? Was it 38? Was it 39? Was it 41? If we accept that, we'd accept this. But others say, no, it's just a round number. And 40 is the higher Sinai number. It represents um, a, a complete period of time. So what happens? They move on. They move on to the next, the next enemy, and they move on to the next judge. Who's the next enemy? Eglon Melech Moab. Eglon is a king um, who lives more locally. Unlike Aram Narayim, who comes from all the way in the north and has like this far trip, not the case at all, at all with Moab. Moab is a local neighbor. And what do they do? So they, Eglon has, uh, is strengthened. He overpowers the Jewish people. He brings in a familiar cast, Amon and Amalek. Which I believe is Yericho. Beautiful. Rashi says it's Yericho. So what happens? Now it's not eight years, it's 18 years. They work, they, they work for, uh, Bnei Zal works for Eglon for 18 years. 
And Hashem says, fine, I accept your, your cries. And he gives them a Moshiach. Eud ben Geira ben Ayimini. He's Eud ben Geira, who is from Yemini, from Benyamin, perhaps. Makes sense because Yericho is in the general area of Benyamin. And what is he? He's an Ishi Teriyad He's a lefty. Okay. So we really need to know he's a lefty. Yeah. That's going to be his secret recipe, the secret sauce, his superpowers. He's a lefty. So what happens? They send with, they send him with a um they they send him with a present for Eglomelma. Rashi says actually something fascinating. It says that he actually wasn't a lefty, but who he, what did he do? He injured his hand, um, forced not to use he injured his right hand. So let's say he's got a splint or a cast on his right arm. So then he, he everybody looked at him and says, Never what can he do? The thing is, nobody expected that he'd be able to use his other hand. It's less threatening. You can imagine that when you get to security and the guy looks like a cripple, nobody they're going to give him a little bit of a less of a go of a go a, a thorough check at security. So what happens? He makes a sword. That's not a beautiful picture of it. It's jagged on both sides. Uh, he puts it on his um, right hip. So I'm going to stand up for just a moment. Hopefully, we'll be able to see this on the screen. We're trying. Okay, so if you are a righty, imagine all those old pictures of a movie with the, uh, the sword, right? So you get ready to fight. You pull the sword that way and start fighting. If you are a lefty, you're going to pull it out of that side is in your left hand. They assumed he was a righty. So if security does a pat down on that side, nothing. He's free and clear. So he puts it underneath his clothing, al yerech yimino on his right thigh. What happens? And he, he brings this mincha, he brings this offer to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon is an ish barimo'od. He's a healthy man. Not really what we mean to say by healthy, but he is patim. Rashi says he's fattened. He is an obese man. Take a look at the picture. These are the paintings are amazing that people made of what these uh, what these uh, what these uh, stories look like. They have him as sorry, the lights went out. They have him as a large, large man. So now let's take a look at what happens. This probably, the, the mincha that they brought was probably the tax tribute. They are the subjects of Eglon. They have to pay him taxes. So they send the whole delegation. And what does this delegation do? They come and they bring him the taxes and they say, here's your money. We owe it to you. And then they all leave. He went to Psilim, which was by Gilgal which is not by Yericho, it's a little bit away, and he then comes back. And probably when he comes back, security is like, oh, right, 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 right. You already cleared security. We remember you. You can come straight in. He didn't have to wait on any lines. He comes right. Um, now, why does he send them back? So the Abar Benel says, when you 
He wanted to make sure that he was the only one in danger. Now, if he tried to do something where it was him and this whole delegation, now what's going to happen? Nobody's going to trust him. They're not, he's not, we're going to private audience. He's just by himself and he's a crippled looking guy. Yeah, he's less threatening. He's more likely to get what he wants. So what happens? He comes back. He goes, King, listen, I have a, a private matter I'd like to speak to you about. So Eglon turns to everybody and his entire security team, and he says out, and everybody leaves. And he's up in his, uh, he has an aliyah, it is a room up, 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 up high in the house. In his, in his palace. Um, and you remember, there's no air conditioning back then. So how do you create air conditioning? You get a roofed room with uh, windows you put high up, and then the breeze is going to come in through the window. What's it going to do? It's going to cool the room off. I have something I want to tell you. I, I want to say tell you the word of God. Now Rashi adds in, tell you the word of God. How can I tell you the word of God if you're sitting down? But it's passable, and the Gemara says that he actually gets up on his own. Why? Because he shows respect for Hashem. And his reward, his ancestor is Ruth. The story of Ruth, who is the great, 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 who is the ancestor of David. Then takes his left hand, takes it from his left, from his right thigh, he jams it into his beton, into his stomach. Now remember, he's a very obese man, so it has to be exactly in the right place, or it won't act, it won't be a fatal blow. I he'll hurt. He, he might need some surgery afterwards but he'll survive. But he hits him right in the place where the fat allows, it clears up, and he gets him, he hits him in his vital organs. What happens? The sword gets swallowed up by all of his fat, and out comes everything. All of his waste comes out. Then goes out and locks the door. And then when he leaves, the, the servants are coming. Security is there. The doors are locked. Says the Malvin. The doors are locked. And what happens? They smell. Now, when, when he takes this fatal blow to his, uh, to his chest, what ends up happening is all, all of his waste comes out. It smells terrible, says Malcolm. smells like he defecated. Well, that said, that makes 100% sense why the attitude of his guards are, oh, I don't know what he ate for lunch, but man, we're not going in there. And he's buying a bathroom, doing his, uh, taking care of his needs. If we go in there, it's going to be terribly embarrassing. Well, I don't want to be the one that does that. So what happens? He's going to the bathroom. 
Vayachilu ad bosh, they wait. Binenu poteach dalto, aliyah. So it's a while. Every, there are days, every once in a while, you spend a little bit of extra time in the bathroom. There's a certain point where everybody's like, no, that is not a normal time to be in the bathroom. Something must be up. And then when that happens, you get panicky. They get panicky. He is dead. He's dead. So what happens next? But Ayud had bought himself enough time to, to get away. He, he's already far enough away. He blows the shofar, Ephraim, Benyam in that area. He blows the shofar. And what happens? He says, Moab has fallen in our hands. And he conquers Mabrotayardin. That's the crossover the Jews came in. He conquers it. Why is that amazing? Because he, he traps the Moab army. They killed 10,000 people. 10,000 people. It's amazing. And Moab is humbled in the eyes of the Jewish people. And what ends up happening? And the, uh, the people are, are saved and it's quiet for 80 years. That is where we end. But I, that we're, we'll, we'll save the beginning, the next show fate for next week. It's one, one possible. But the question I, we have to ask is, what was his game plan? What was he, what was he trying to do? What, this whole Ehud story seems a little bit strange. He comes, he's a lefty, pretends to be a cripple, all of these things. Fine, I get it. But what's his game plan? What's his strategy? This is a beautiful idea by Michael Hatton. Rabbi Michael Hatton says, he is going for the lone wolf approach. The beauty of a lone wolf is that if he fails, nobody has to take the hit with him. They'll say there's this Meshuggah guy that lived in this neighborhood and did something crazy. Okay, he's not attached to anyone. The, the thinking that he has is, I'm gonna attack, attack on behalf of the Jewish people. If I succeed, I will. And if I succeed, and it's amazing, then the Jewish people will Tishkota Aretz. The land will be quiet and Moab will be safe. What if I fail? We don't know that Ehud's enough. We don't say that. But what if Ehud fails? You know what Ehud wants to know? There'll be no repercussions for the Jewish people. He comes with the delegation to pay taxes. He sends them off. You're not part of my group. Not part of my plan. He only engages them after he kills Ehud. I'm sorry, Eglo. He says, I did it. Now he blows the shoulder and says, we're going to win. Until that moment, he's not willing to take the chance. I actually thought that it's fascinating that Ehud is one of the first shofar. He sounds a whole lot, a whole lot like Shimshon. We're going to spend a lot more time on Shimshon than half of one shear. But Shimshon's whole story is that what? He does these crazy things, but he's always acting alone. The lone wolf approach is a smart approach if you want to protect the Jewish people. Ehud cares. He does not want a failed attempt to assassinate Eglon to lead into even more 
repercussions and even more suffering for the Jewish people. So what does he do? He, he, he takes one for the team. God helps him. He succeeds and they win. Shimshon is very similar. It's actually almost the same thing again at the end. That is Shofi number one and Shofi number two. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Have a wonderful week and keep walking in the ways of the practice.